Those boats are filled with anywhere from 60 to 150 people, men, women, and children. And it's absolutely devastating. And those people are, are an invisible people. You know, nobody wrote them down when they were born. Nobody knows that they died. They're just gone. And that is very tragic. Welcome to a special series of Beyond Soundbites podcasts. I'm Jacob Mel. If you're a new listener, this podcast seeks to humanize the issues of forced displacement and mass migration by bringing forth the personhood of displaced people through stories and voices. Earlier episodes introduced listeners to people from the Middle East, Central Asia, and Central America. Survive. It was like that, just surviving. Hello, Jacob. How are you? It's difficult for me to engage people in conversations about immigration because it's deeply personal. This series, beginning in episode 13, is a bit different. We'll hear some brief words in each episode from people around the globe who are doing frontline work with communities of displaced people during the pandemic. The goal is to introduce you to some of the pressure points in different regions so that we can unite together in prayer and, when possible, take concrete, supportive actions. Every person who becomes displaced is created by God in His image and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend. I pray that under the weight of our own hardships during COVID-19, we'll find points of empathy toward those who have long faced instability, isolation, and loss. I pray that in the midst of our own lonesomeness and fears, we won't cease to look toward the people in the margins of society and take actions to care for them as we ourselves would want to be cared for. So let's get started. In the last couple episodes, we heard from organizations in El Paso and Minneapolis about how COVID-19 is affecting migrant people and asylum seekers in North America. Today, we move abroad to another region that has long been volatile for displaced people, the Mediterranean, specifically southern Spain. It's a two-part conversation. We'll start with some background on the region, and we'll hear about the environment for migrant people there pre-COVID from a woman named Bethany who helps run a refugee center in the city of Malaga. In part two, Bethany shares insights, stories, updates, and prayer points since the pandemic hit. First, we have to take some time to establish the basic shape of the European context for displaced people because it's so vastly different from that of the United States and Canada. It starts with geography. The United States has land borders with only two nations. Though 15 to 20,000 people have crossed irregularly into Canada each year since 2017, it's the border with Mexico, about 2,000 miles long, that sees major migration activity. The only place that has served as a significant point of irregular entry by sea into the U.S. is southern Florida, where thousands of Cubans have entered by boat since the 1960s. The situation in Europe is much more complex. In 1993, the European Union was formed as a political and economic alliance that currently has 27 member states. It overlaps with the Schengen Zone, a group of 26 countries that have agreed to loosen control between their borders to increase mobility for over 400 million Europeans. The outer boundary of the European Union runs along about 20 different nations by land and has an estimated 41,000 miles of coast. At least 18,000 of those coastal miles are on the Mediterranean Sea most of them in Spain, Italy, and Greece. Across from and adjacent to Europe, 
the southern and eastern coasts of the Mediterranean are lined with nations that have high levels of violence, instability, and poverty, or that can serve as transit points for migrant people from struggling countries in their region. There are three main routes into Europe via the Mediterranean, and they've undergone massive shifts since 2015. The eastern route runs between Turkey and the EU member state of Greece. In 2015, over 800,000 people, mostly Syrians, passed through. That number fell by 80% the next year when Turkey made a deal with the EU to secure its land and sea borders. The central route runs between Libya and Italy. It's a longer, more dangerous stretch of sea where people crossing originate mostly from northern and sub-Saharan Africa. The western route, our focus for this episode, also sees largely people from Africa. It runs across the Strait of Gibraltar, only nine miles wide at its narrowest point between Morocco and Spain. There are also two enclaves on the northern coast of Morocco, 32 square miles of land total, that belong to Spain and thus serve as the EU's only land border with Africa, a fortified but sought-after point of entry for migrant people. A migrant rescue ship that's repeatedly found itself blocked from docking in European ports has once again resumed its mission to rescue people off the coast of Libya. However, the Italian interior minister has already warned it won't... One incident in 2018 illustrates the shift in prominence from the central to the western route over the last couple of years, and how connected such patterns are to the politics of the EU. In June of that year, Spain and Italy both elected new leaders. Italy's government was now steered by a coalition of two populist parties with tough immigration stances who ran on slogans like Italians first and argued that the countries forming the outer border of the EU shoulder an unfair amount of the burden when it comes to migrants and asylum seekers. Spain's new prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, on the other hand, promoted a friendlier posture toward migrants. Right now, Aquarius is transferring 600 people to Europe, where we have yet to learn their final... In June of that year, soon after both countries held their elections, Italy turned away a rescue ship called the Aquarius, carrying over 600 migrant people it had just rescued off the Libyan coast. The small island nation of Malta also refused to let the ship dock. Sanchez, in a mixture of goodwill and political calculation, accepted the ship and agreed that Spain would receive the people on board, care for them, and process their claims in partnership with France. That year, partly because of immigration policies, but also because of conflicts and other world events, Spain saw a 60% increase in first-time asylum applications, while Italy saw a 60% decrease. Italy began training and equipping the Libyan Coast Guard to apprehend migrants at sea. The number of migrant people arriving to Italy via the central route fell from 119,000 to 23,000, while the number arriving to Spain via the western route jumped from 23,000 to 57,000. The next year, 2019, Spain received asylum applications from almost every country in Africa and the Middle East, especially Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Mali, and Syria, as well as many from Central Asia, and also Georgia and Ukraine. Many people entering Spain in search of some form of international protection come by air from Latin America. Last year, 40,000 from Venezuela, 30,000 from Colombia, and thousands more from Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Peru. 
Even before COVID-19, the situation for displaced people in the Mediterranean region was dynamic, and the pressure points were intense. In the rest of this episode, we'll hear first-hand updates about the pre- and post-COVID environment in southern Spain from someone who planted herself there a few years ago with a prayer to help meet the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of migrant people and asylum seekers. Bethany, an American relief worker and missionary, lives in the coastal city of Malaga. So I moved here in 2017. And I moved here because the Lord had really put on my heart the plight of the refugee. And that started for me in 2015. And I began asking him, like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to move to Greece and pull people off of boats or move to Europe and wake up the church, move to Lebanon and work in a camp? Like, I'm willing to do it. But what what is it? You know, where where can my skills meet the need? That came right as Spain was becoming the main point of entry into Europe. In response to those changing migrant pathways, Bethany and a team of other people got a ministry center going that now serves 300 migrant families each week from 65 different countries. They do food distributions, Spanish and English language classes, family events, a sewing co-op, and much more. The majority of families the center serves are from North and West Africa, countries like Morocco, Algeria, Mali, and the Ivory Coast. Just like at the U.S.-Mexico border region, the reasons for leaving their home countries are wide and varied, and their journeys are perilous. People cross between Morocco and Spain on rubber boats. A lot of those people are trafficked, but some aren't, and they're just coming to family that they have here. But their entry is illegal. And so I don't know how you want to classify those people. They're coming looking for a better life, leaving tribal conflict, leaving awful family situations, and some are just leaving like a bad economic situation, like unable to work or starving family members. The center also supports people whose journeys to Spain covered much more ground. And then our people that come from further, from Central Asia, West Asia, the Middle East, come here in all different ways. A lot of them have been in refugee camps, people who have, or people who have crossed North Africa any number of ways on foot or by um, smuggler, or just slowly made their way across. Probably initially shooting for Libya, where they thought they could cross into Italy, but then when that closed on, they just kept moving on. Um, had to get smuggled across Algeria or went down and around it because it closed its borders and required a visa a couple years ago, and eventually made their way into Morocco. According to UNHCR data, almost 20,000 people have drowned or gone missing at sea in the Mediterranean region from 2014 to the end of 2019. Bethany had recently attended a conference with other refugee workers in Europe and heard a stat that suggests a far higher number an estimate that three of every five migrant boats that take off from the Moroccan coast sink at sea. Those boats are filled with anywhere from 60 to 150 people, men, women, and children, and it's absolutely devastating. And those people are, are an invisible people. You know, nobody wrote them down when they were born. Nobody knows that they died. They're just gone. And that is very tragic. And they've started calling the Straits of Gibraltar the black man's graveyard, because of the number of sub-Saharan Africans attempting to cross. 
What challenges do displaced people face once they're in Spain? Just like in the U.S., their legal situations differ widely. Many are given a humanitarian status that extends limited protections and rights. This is the case for most Venezuelans who are concentrated in Madrid and are now the third largest group of people seeking asylum in the EU after Syria and Afghanistan. A very small number gain status as refugees according to the Geneva Convention definition. That is, someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. The last group are those who cross irregularly into Spain and don't seek refugee or humanitarian protections, but hope to either join family members or simply make a living there under the table and without the prospect of a clear pathway to citizenship. The center serves families and individuals in all of these situations. Some elements of their experience apply across the board, particularly at the beginning. People who have just arrived are, are desperate and floundering, generally. They don't know what to do. They often can't speak Spanish. And they sometimes have a family with them, and sometimes they don't. And they just desperately need any assistance that can be offered. It's scary. You know, I moved to a different country, but I did it with enough money and with a strong support system and with having studied like the very basics of the language and moving to a job that would let me live in that country. And it was still scary to try and find my way around, to figure things out, to know that when I'm walking on the street, nobody knew what I was saying to them, but that I looked so different that they knew that I didn't belong. And so that's what these people are experiencing, but tenfold, because they're, they also have so much fear of being caught, of being sent back, of not knowing how to live here, of not being able to thrive here, of their kids not succeeding here. And then the kids come and have to figure out how to succeed in the Spanish school system, which is very different from any sort of school system that they had in their own country. And that's, I think, probably one of the biggest concerns for parents is they have this dream of their kid receiving a Western education for free and they get here and their kids don't know how to do it because it's so different. For Muslim families, there's often an added layer of stress. So there's a lot of racism and, and racial tension between Muslim people who are very clearly Muslim, particularly it's visible with women and Spaniards, and then that extends into the police force. And that is comes down to a number of things and most likely is rooted in the, the conflict between the Spanish people and the Moors 500 years ago. On the positive side, Spain has a universal health care system, which all the families at the center are able to access, though fear of exposing themselves often keeps families without proper documents from doing so. Accessing employment is another story. There's very, very few opportunities for any type of sustained work for immigrants and refugees here. One of the reasons we do like an English class at our, our center is so that people can, can um, get jobs that are centered around tourism, which is pretty big in southern Spain. Um, whether that's selling things on the beach or carrying bags at a hotel or working at like a restaurant storefront to try and draw people in. So those kind of things lead to a pretty desperate mental state. 
and emotional state. Just the the constant un, unsurety of what what's going to happen next or even the next steps that they need to take. Feelings of fear and uncertainty about the next step to take have become a reality felt by the entire globe during the first five months of 2020. Each country, state or province, city, town, household, and individual is experiencing COVID-19 differently. Each ministry supporting displaced people is prayerfully asking questions and trying to navigate issues they've never had to before. In the next episode, Bethany will share insights, stories, updates, and prayer points since the pandemic hit Malaga. Even if the government said to everyone in Spain, put three weeks of food in your house, none of them would have been able to afford to do that. It was like a ball that just kept rolling faster and faster. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. The interviewee's name was changed and some identifying details were omitted at her request. Thanks to Hannah Bonifacius for editorial support on this episode. 